Hi there, um, I'm Adam Knight. I'm the head of planning at TMW Unlimited. We're a customer engagement agency in London. Welcome to Viewpoint. It's a series of podcasts discussing all sorts of future trends impacting how people behave and how brands need to respond right now to best capitalize on these trends. This is our first ever episode, exciting times. Um, and today we'll be discussing all types of retail innovation. I've got some interesting guests um, in the studio with us today to talk through these subjects. First of all, we've got um, a guest star of um, Josh McBain, who's the Head of Innovation and Retail Sector Lead at Future Foundation Unlimited. Hi, Josh. Hi, Adam. And um, they're our Futurology partners uh, within the Unlimited group. We've then got Kate Wheaton, who is the Head of Strategy uh, within TMW Unlimited. Hi, Kate. Hello. And then lastly, definitely not least, we have Mark Curtis, our very own Head of Labs and All Thing Innovation at TMW. Interestingly, not wearing your white coat today, by the way, Mark. No, it's in the wash. Hello. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, okay. So the way this will work is that we're first up, we're going to ask Josh to give us a quick run through of some of the trends he's seen appear recently within the retail sector. We'll then pause and have a quick roundtable discussion on each of those, really. Um, and I'll jump in and poke at what's been said and ask the guys to really sharpen their thoughts around that area, getting to a strong idea of just how retailers should be responding. So to set the scene, over the past few weeks, um, we've seen Pokemon Go go bonkers. We've seen Am- Amazon Dash pop up and make headlines over the last few days. And we've seen a really sad ending uh, on the high street uh, stalwart that was BHS. Lots of movement, lots of dir- disruption and challenging times. Um, Josh, can you take this a bit further and tell us what you're starting to see from a future trends in retail? So I think we're looking at the future of retail. It's interesting the extent to which the type of innovations and trends that we're seeing and the ones that we expect to see in the future are very much being driven by more fundamental changes to the customer journey and the path to purchase. So in summary, what we're seeing is the path to purchase get both shorter, longer, rounder, more experiential, and over the longer term, increasingly challenged. So if we kind of break that part a bit and go part by part, well, in the first instance, we're seeing the customer journey definitely getting shorter. Um, the amount of time and energy people have to put into a shopping experience is getting less and less with more convenient and seamless retail solutions in store, cashless payments in store, more convenient e-commerce options, um, one buy button Uh, click online, but also increasingly a more fundamental trend that we call life on demand, where increasingly consumers are expecting the delivery of products and services to far more convenient locations and the time that they choose. And we now find it's around half of consumers in the UK who claim that they would be interested in a service that could deliver a product to wherever they are within just two hours. Now, on the other hand, we're also seeing the shopping journey get longer in the sense that people are spending far more time shopping around extensively to try and find the best possible deal using price comparison websites and other online tools. What's also interesting is the rise of showrooming, where increasingly people will go into a physical store to research and test out products to then buy later online uh, and vice versa. And actually, we find about 50% of people in the UK are now going into physical retail stores just to have an actual feel and look at a product to then later buy it online. But perhaps the most fundamental trend that we're seeing is the way in which the customer journey is becoming far more experiential. So 
in the short term, what we have seen is retailers look to embed more entertainment and leisure features in retail stores in order to try and galvanize consumer interest, um, meet the challenge of e-commerce and uh, online shopping, but also in order to drive point of sale. And what's interesting, though, is that over time, what we're seeing, especially for larger retailers and for flagship stores, is that the retail space is being redesigned to purely offer an immersive brand experience, where the experience is the key part of it, rather than necessarily selling products products there and then. But over the longer term, I think the most fundamental trend and indeed challenge that retailers are likely to see is the idea of invisible commerce or automated commerce. So as Adam mentioned earlier, what we've seen through Amazon Dash is a new service that allows customers to use a new device that they can plug in to a growing range of appliances, washing machines, kettles, coffee machines. And when they run out of coffee pods or washing capsules, they can simply click the button and have the item delivered to their home the next day. And we actually find that half of consumers in the UK are now interested in a service that can replenish their household goods automatically. So I think in summary, what we're seeing is a far more complex and weaving and less linear path to purchase. And for many brands and retailers, this means it's very difficult to identify when the customer is going to jump on this journey, as in decide to actually buy an item or product, and when they're going to get off and actually make that final purchase. Some really ear-opening stuff there, Josh. Thanks so much for that uh, canter through. So let's get into it. Let's reveal the first topic. So I think that there's a really interesting dichotomy in terms of online to offline behavior when it comes to shopping and that this kind of the the, the, the perfect world, the Garden of Eden doesn't really exist yet. Uh, for shoppers, the only really thing which connects the two in a frictionless way is click and collect. My question to you three, will retailers ever be able to recognize an online shopper and their behaviors when they enter the offline environment? Should they be aiming to achieve this? Could a consumer who's browsed an object online be served an offer when they walk into the physical store? Uh, what's the end game here and when are we likely to get there? Kate, I know you've got some thoughts on this. Do you want to start us off? Well, the answer is yes. It's all possible. It's, it's possible now to do everything you've identified there. The technology exists to identify individuals from online to offline. As long as they have set up an account and they carry some form of identification that, that actually recognises them as they walk into the store. So that could be Wi-Fi based. So yes, basically you've already set it up and it recognises you when you walk in because you've got an app open or whatever. So there, there are many, many different ways of doing this. Actually, customers kind of don't really understand why you can't already do it because obviously everything operates through some form of technological magic which they're not very interested in so i think at the heart of it it's you've got to give people a really compelling reason to actually want to carry that form of id you've got to explain to them what the benefits are same as always and you've got to then really examine how you make the experience as friction free as possible i don't think people want to necessarily have to do another action as they walk into a store, particularly if they're in you know, grocery for sh shopping, for example, wrestling with a trolley and a toddler and, you know, trying to find their list or whatever it is. So I think a lot of what we need to do in that particular environment is about how do you make it really easy for people just to walk in and, and you know who they are. That sets up, you know, another range of kind of questions. 
you do need to enable people to set up permissions as well, I think, up front. So yes, I'm happy to buy into that. I will set it up so that it allows me to do that. And I want to know that it's happening, but I don't want to actually have to actively do anything necessarily to, to kind of prompt it to action. So don't ask me to, I don't know, scan something or flick something on. I'd kind of like to be as passive as possible in that. But I think you do have to recognise that some, you know, the, the kind of ongoing version of that might be, so I've got the I've got the app and it recognises me as I come in and then you could then send me offers as I went around the store. That's quite, you know, it's all possible to do. The question is, I think you have to ask for permission to do it because some people like the idea of that and other people reject it very, very thoroughly because it interrupts their normal store kind of experience. So again, down to consumer choice and finding a really compelling reason to set it up in the first instance and then make it really, really simple for customers to do in store. But it's all possible. I think your your the last point there about um, yeah things that are possible. Um, I think it'd be interesting to get your view, Mark. The, what's the art of the possible at the moment and how deliverable is this kind of world that we're looking to move to? Well, I think it's already happening, actually. Yeah. Um, I think that, that there are two ways to look at it. One is you, as a retailer, you try and own that relationship, um, which I think actually, as Kate said, it revealed, some of the problems that are revealed in that is this whole issue of having an app, having an mm. account, getting permission. Or you go down the other route, which is you look at the people who are already getting that data, the Googles of this world, for instance, and you buy that data and that service from them. And effectively, that's what Google are already doing with um, Google Now. When you go and visit a location, it it will um, start surfacing either questions or information about the the location that you've um, either visited or are actually visiting. So when I go to the station in the morning, Without actually setting anything up on on the Google Now cards on my Android phone, it was giving me information about delays and um, you know possible connections. And it does exactly the same thing when I visit a shopping centre or when I visit a garden centre in my house. It asks me to review it as well. And you know you can optionally choose to interact with it on a, a on a deeper level by becoming a guide or becoming you know a, a, a voluntary giver of extra information. But Google is already getting that information. It's already surfacing additional information. So you know whether or not they'll have a direct relationship with the retailer beyond the ability to retarget um, it remains to be seen but I suspect that that's probably more the the route that we're going down because it doesn't require additional apps it doesn't require additional permissions beyond what you've already agreed to with Google. I think the challenge there is how you tie together the data the retailer really wants which is about that person shopping and how they behave what they buy because that's the richest data they can probably get access to with an external party who mm. they probably won't want to share that data with because yeah, it'll all be anonymized i mean the, the yeah, way the way google works at the moment is you're effectively buying ad inventory mm. against probabilistic um mm. you know data based on a group of people having done certain activities but i think that will change in the future i mean interestingly there's a there's a startup called People.io who we've, yeah. we've, we've chatted to a couple of times um, and their kind of their whole model is based around the idea that in the future anonymized data or, or the gathering of data on individuals will be um, legislated against via Europe's um, privacy legislations and then people will be able to control much more the data that they give to retailers in order to receive much more tailored offers and vouchers and and also get payment for sharing that data in return so i think you know that's another potential way and that that is predicated on having some kind of app installed but it's again it's an app that would work across multiple Mm -hmm. retailers with multiple use cases 
Yeah, I think from a consumer viewpoint, we've really flagged some of the key challenges and motivations here. So I think on the one hand, it's clearly true that consumers have moved and the industry's moved to an opt-in model. So retailers have to work slightly harder to incentivize mm-hmm. that sharing of data. And what we found for our research over the last four or five years is that you can pretty much um, associate the majority of consumers with a data pragmatist viewpoint. That is, they're happy to share their personal information as long as a clear benefit in return. And I think what advantage retailers have is that when you look at the types of information consumers are most happy to share, locational data always mm-hmm. ranks fairly high, probably because it never seems too personal, i.e. where you are at that exact moment. But also, there's probably a clear benefit you can see in sharing that information. And at the same time, we're seeing retailers being able to access a range of new types of information that really allow them to offer far more genuinely personalized engagement in store. And perhaps the best example I've seen is the use of Facebook's place tips in America. So Facebook have created a new beacon system that many retailers in the US are now experimenting with. And this basically gives retailers, when the consumer opts in, access to that person's Facebook account and Facebook Mm. information, provides a range of different types of information that they can use to contextualize their engagement. I think the big challenge for retailers, depending on obviously the size of, of the retailer you're talking about, is really the investment required to set up the technology, whether it's beacons, even you know, Wi-Fi, if you've got a really, really large store footprint in large stores, um, Bluetooth, you know, Bluetooth, I'd probably take out of the equation. And, and it's kind of, it's really challenging when you look at the, the cost element of it that you have to put in to identify people. I mean, I've done some research recently, which really, showed, I was quite surprised. It, genuinely, when we do research normally brands tend to have to rein in their ambitions in light of consumer appetite for the change that you're putting in front of them i think that's changing i think actually we're in a world now where retail is sort of in the in the mainstream retail particularly is lagging behind customer expectations i think consumers are moving faster and actually are more open to the adoption of technology that 10 years ago we'd have thought was really out there like fingerprint technology um, and just the acceptance of those sort of things I think will very very quickly challenge and make big retailers move faster and of course lots of the examples we've been talking about are small retailers where they have the flexibility and a, a much more sort of you know strong community of interest that, that they can leverage I think the real the biggies where you're looking at the big grocery chains the kind of you know, the, the general department stores those are the ones where the cost is incredibly high. It's a really, really broad church of consumers. Finding the right technology to get the majority involved is absolutely key. And I think it's going to be interesting to see which of the ones that are adopted as the kind of key form of ID. You know, is it going to be the app, an app? Is it going to be on the back of digital wallets? All that kind of thing. I think it's absolutely still up for debate. Just to echo what Kate said, really, I think I think payment will actually be the biggest I think be you know big trojan horse yeah. or, or you know kind of at the vanguard of the kind of changes we see you know all the big supermarkets have resisted updating their point of sale because they all know that there is a measure of disruption in the pipeline which you know and, and the dust has really yet to settle on contactless or you know as Kate yeah. said you know fingerprint payments or app payments so whatever that decision is whatever whatever seems to be become the consensus in terms of how we process our payments and and that will have to link very much to online offline location probably 
you know, if you look at the um, the, the Chinese model through through WeChat, yeah. where people are buying things, you know, effectively from chatbots. Once once we have a more cohesive view on on how payment is handled, I think then then we will start to see all the other um, parts of the equation fall into place. And I think the resistance from big retailers is is it's not a sort of ideal or anything like that. I think it's really down to cost yeah, and absolutely. sheer mm. disruption. Yeah, because they've got to change the physical changes. devices. It's really costly. Yeah. So. Yeah, like so, so. 30 tills in a, in a single supermarket, yeah. you know, each one of them has to be changed out across a whole network of supermarkets. Yeah. So, so, so my challenge to you three, I'm the marketing director of a, a national high street retailer. Congratulations. Let's, let's, let's say supermarket. Thank you very much. I have a relatively humble innovation and technology budget. What's the one thing that I wake up tomorrow morning, walk into my team and say, well, this is what we're going to focus on for the next six months? I'd say payment. Yeah. I think that that is, Mark's right, it is. It sort of unlocks the potential of, of other forms of identification that mean you could tie a huge amount of stuff together. It's Yeah, it's the one thing that sits above almost everything else if you look at um, some of the issues that we've had over the years with, with some of our brands trying to run voucher campaigns, for instance, mm-hmm. or couponing campaigns, it always comes back to redemption and that always comes back to payment processing and the technology at Till. I would say that it's less about how looking at one particular area, it's more about changing, and I'll probably bang on about this all morning, but you know, it's actually about looking at how they're engaging with the kinds of disruptions that are going on out there and being much more open to those and you know getting involved in the startup community you know they're not going to they're not going to be innovating frankly in their own teams they've just got to be much more open to all the stuff that's going on out there in fintech in payment processing in distribution in last mile logistics all of that stuff which they are by and large i mean retailers are not stupid on this yeah, one. yeah so although i agree that cash just would be very important take my one piece of advice would be for a more integrated data strategy. So in many retailers, you find that you have loyalty card teams, um, other data loyalty teams working quite separately from other parts of the business and strategy. And because of some of the points I highlighted earlier, I think having a more fundamental standing as far as possible across each stage of your customer journey, trying to work out whether it's through locational data, online behavior, trying to get a, a more sophisticated view on how your customer's path to purchase is changing is going to be the vital first step before you move on to any future innovations. Fantastic. Thank you very much for that. Let's move on. Um, let's get on to question number two, which is is a really interesting area for, for, for me. It's digital serendipity. And what do I mean by that? It's, uh, it, it's well, the fact that online retail has really been set up to facilitate quite functional shopping behaviours. doesn't really encourage browsing per se, specifically when you start to sort of zoom into the supermarket um, online um, environments that they've constructed. Should retailers um, continue to follow this behaviour of quite focused shopping behaviours um, or should they work harder to ensure digital is able to sort of fulfil all types of shopper behaviour? Could we um, could online facilitate a weekend browse through recipes, for example, pre-doing the weekly online shop? Does curated discovery need to be part of the online shopping experience and will this inspire or disrupt? Josh, I know you've got a few thoughts on this to start us off. Yeah, so this is a really kind of fundamental question for retailers, but all clients that we work with. So on this fundamental level, we've clearly seen the interception of a growing depth of risk attitude um, combined with a view of curated discovery from brands where you want more expert-led advice and discovery. But at the same time, an emerging trend that we call Surprise Me is really about this question of what room is there for serendipity? 
And it's interesting, you see philosophers now talking about the role of Netflix and Amazon in, in funneling our choices down with every purchase that we're actually removing free will from oh, the totally, shopper. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I think the challenge is how do you, of course, try to personalize it and make it relevant for the customer, but allow for this area of surprise and delight. And I think what's really useful here are new type of online platforms that try and link the personalized service you're getting online to the exact customer need. So just one example, um, in Sweden, we're seeing a, a various apps now that are linked to different discount stores and supermarkets in the area and give you personalized suggestions on recipes you can try that are based on discounts in the local area, food you haven't tried before. So I think we may see more sophisticated devices like this that try and funnel down um, the tailored advice you get around certain consumer needs and contexts. But all, all, all this, unfortunately you know, just serves to reinforce the filter bubble that we live in. It's actually taking the filter bubble outside of something that we can currently opt out of. You know, the filter bubble exists, you know, very very much in Google and Facebook. We only get served up things that they think we want to see, which means that we never get to see stuff that we maybe don't want to see, so we never get challenged. If that then extends into into our shopping, then, you know, effectively, irrespective of how clever the algorithm gets, we're still at the behest of you know, AI or, or algorithms. I agree with that to a point. I think on the other hand, if you think pre-digital age, when you were restricted to whatever was put on the shelves in front of you, then even with the, you know, funneled approach, the thought approach we have now, you still have far more opportunity to find new things than you could in the past. So it's certainly an issue for the rollout of the digital age, but people, despite these challenges, still have far more freedom and choice than they had 20, 30 years ago. I agree. And I think they do, but I think it's also human nature to sort of revert to what you're comfortable with. So I think on, isn't it average, people have a portfolio of about sort of eight meals they cook reg- regularly. And I think, you know, they, they challenge themselves around different occasions to sort of cook differently. But in the sort of day in, day out, we're creatures of habit and we operate on the, a low risk basis, which is actually, you know, what will the kids eat? What will everyone like? And, and all the rest of it. I think it's quite a simple challenge around the online grocery experience they most of the the retailers do invest in quite serious amounts of inspiration around recipes and even sort of thinking about a bit of meal planning and all the rest of it but it's not actually a joined up experience as you go into the shopping mode and it's almost as if this view that you know you've got to absolutely kind of isolate the moment when you're buying from any other form of intrusion because it might sort of divert you I think is I think it's very well meaning but it's I think it's really pretty dull and I think we've all got used to the behavior of online shopping to to be allowed to Mm. get on with it a bit but in certain examples this is genuinely because the systems cannot be joined up Um, so I think really starting to think, you know, building on your point, Josh, you know, what's the journey you're taking the customer on? How do you actually integrate the systems more meaningfully to deliver on that? I think the other thing is, I think people shop in very different modes at different times, even in, say, supermarkets. When I shop at certain, you know, it's really well proven if you're shopping for that evening or you know, the weekend, you tend to be a little bit more relaxed um, and you tend to browse more. I'd like to be able to choose my mode and sort of find some way of communicating that to you as I shop online. As in, I'm in the mood for browsing, give me inspiration versus, no, I'm just here to do it as quickly as possible. And it'd be great if, you know, dynamically we could recognise that sort of stuff and, and sort to feed in in the right way 
Um, there was actually an interesting example of biometrics already being used in store to mm. measure customers' mood oh, yeah. and reflect it. So um, it's I'm not gonna, I'm not suggesting we're going to see it rolled out across the UK, but at, at the mm. moment in Melbourne and Australia, the, the Uniqlo store have invested in a U-mood booth mm. where you go, you sit down, you, you put on a headset and a, and a glove that monitors your vital science, your biometric information, and then you're shown um, some clips to measure mm. your emotional response, and then you're shown a range of clothing items, and then you're then shown which clothing item provoked the most uh, positive emotional response that I guess you then compare to your rational response. Um, and so I think it's interesting how, again, not suggesting that's going to be widespread across the UK, but we're already seeing today how biometric data can be used to personalise the experience in store. Uh, also, the, you know, we're, we're kind of willfully ignoring the fact that different types of products work better online. Mm. So, you know, when you think about food shopping, without wanting to sound like I'm making up a load of psychobabble, you can you can almost see that human beings want to walk around picking food off things. You know, that's kind of where we've come from. We're we're very analog creatures. And all this digital stuff is make myself sound like a grandfather, but you know, digital stuff is great because it makes things quicker, it gives us access mm-hmm. to more choice, it gives us access to data. But fundamentally, we are still sacks of meat mm. who want to walk around pulling stuff off trees or digging grubs out of the ground. So what can work brilliantly for comparing the specs of two cameras online or you know, shopping for the best deal on batteries or you know, bulk purchases might never actually, you know, we might have to actually come to terms with the fact, retailers too, that it might never actually translate for the big shopping experience unless we fundamentally change the way that we the way that we're buying food you know or buying at meals and and i mean retailers are um you know they are trying to push us towards a much more convenience led lifestyle you know they would like us not to actually cook things they would like us to to buy pre-prepared and processed meals so maybe that is you know sorry my own my own my, well, my, my own my own prejudice is probably coming out a little bit there but but you know so I guess if, if, if retailers or, you know, food retailers are able to change the way that people eat, then possibly then that moves us towards a more digital way of shopping. But, you know, fundamentally, I think that, you know, the way the, the reason that retail shopping, food shopping is, is, you know, has been resistant to digital is probably due to the fact that, you know, we are fundamentally analog creatures. It's, it's quite interesting because you see this when people shop. So if you think the first bit is all the visceral, interesting stuff when they walk into the fresh fruit, um, veg, fish, meat, poultry, that that area. And you see a very high level of interest and engagement at that point. And they're really on it and kind of enjoying it and looking around. We still see it as real food. It's real food. And Mm. you see it as something you're going to eat in Mm. future. So people sort of start very quickly, you know, seeing something and kind of going, oh, I can make that with that. And then... They hit a point and then it sort of changes markedly as they walk into effectively the packaged goods and the less interesting stuff. And it just starts really changing in terms of their interest, their engagement. But that's the higher value stuff from the, from, from the, from the brand's perspective because, you know, it's, it's, they make more profit on things in packets. Hmm. I, I just think it's really interesting and that actually we know the way people want to shop is probably 
the way some people already do, which is they they sort of they they subcontract the kind of boring stuff into mm. online, and mm. they retain the stuff they really want to choose and exercise choice and the, the kind of enjoy the visceral nature of it for the, the more you know, I'm going to go and choose that and buy it myself. Feeds into to the Future Foundation's yeah. romantic home minimalist yeah, trend, isn't it? Definitely true. But it was an interesting innovation that I've seen, and interesting to get your opinion on this. Is um, I was in Chicago recently, and they were I met a company that have created a VR store mm. for, for a client and I was skeptical when I saw it on the screen but I tried it on and I was pretty blown away by how impressive this virtual store was you can pick up products you can read a small packaging it looks pretty real you can trash the store if you want to and you get bored but it's really impressive the way in which it actually felt like a physical store and um, my thought on that is if we see more of these things become possible via websites and and other digital channels then could we see online shopping try and offer more of the experiences that we have in store absolutely i i think you know the 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 great um and we'll probably talk about vr later but one one of the great you know promises of of that technology is more the kind of the mixed reality piece so so i still see vr as being very much an interim technology it's not for the masses really at this point but but when we're all wearing effectively headsets that are able to change the surroundings we're in suddenly every surface can become you know, for a brief period of time, if you want it, the Isle of Sainsbury's. And, you know, suddenly you've got the ability to enjoy that serendipitous walking around, looking at fresh produce, looking at produce from all around the world, being able to examine it, being able to call up extra information. And possibly, yeah, the the the, the, the promise of VR and, and mixed reality and AR is is that it does actually bridge the gap between our analog needs instincts, and, the, yeah. and yeah and instincts and the need to manipulate and touch and feel and you know rather than looking at things on a 16 by 9 square on our desks you know so so yeah po- quite possibly that will be the way that we we get the digital world into our analog brains effectively essentially vr hunter gatherers yeah yeah but i can see i can see how, i mean clearly it's not going to happen on an oculus rift or an htc vive now um because these units are too clunky and you know it's more of a gimmick mm. but it will happen and and I would you know I would agree that it's it's potentially one of the futures that's available to us. And I completely agree that I think ARs where you'll see the most biggest disruption over the longer term. And there's a great example of being used already from Volvo in America, mm-hmm. who have partnered with Microsoft to create AR glasses, where when you're viewing a car, you can change information via the glasses so at Audi showroom today you can edit it on a screen and you view it on a big screen behind you now you can actually change the car in front of you and view types of information crash test for example that you just can't see for a physical store yeah and in a couple of years time these glasses they're not going to be headsets they're going to be discreet they'll be you know ubiquitous effectively in the same way that we're all carrying around mobile phones now and have only really been doing it you know carrying smartphones around for the last what seven years six years um, in six or seven years' time, I wouldn't be surprised if we're all interacting with our own little personally modified universes, mediated again by algorithms through mm. through AR and MR technology. Gosh, it all sounds very lonely. Hmm. So uh, I guess in summary, by the sound that we're really holding out for AR to to, to turn up and really disrupt this um, this idea and, uh, and and to be able to create yeah, really interesting levels of digital serendipity for um, for our retail clients well that's where the end game is but i you know yeah, clearly baby steps clearly there that. are there are lots of things that relays can do and it's and it all goes back down to data mm-hmm. you know and clever use of data and clever use of you know making experiences personal and you know exciting and emotional for people mm. 
Okay, thanks guys. Um, okay, on to topic number three, which in short is um, AI, um, artificial intelligence within retail. And what do I mean uh, when I set this up? So as people plan their lives online, will retailers ever be able to enter the conversations they have about their sat- that Saturday evening barbecue? Could they turn up to suggest recipes or drink choices, for example? AI will, will be able to facilitate this, but will consumers uh, become used to it and find it helpful? Um, will they need be invited in um, will it just be seen as intrusive brands forcing themselves into conversations where they're just simply not welcome Kate I know you've got some views on this yeah I think undoubtedly consumers resent brands kind of intruding into their personal space and we see this again and again however all the evidence from you know, we talked about China earlier and the future of AI really suggests that there will be it will there'll be a growing role for assistants of some kind who provide you with effectively support for your life and I I think it's not that I I don't know how far away this is but for me that feels like I would totally expect having sort of if I have a trusted assistant of some kind that I've effectively bought into and it is a service that could be provided by any number of different brands but it's most likely to be Google or Apple or Amazon and Mm. those guys really you know, if it will be listening and it will, it will hear the conversation and say, yes, here are some recipes and I'm actually going to make recommendations for why, where you should go and buy those things. So I think the role of retail could be highly disintermediated by that kind of thing and hugely disrupted. And it wouldn't surprise me if effectively we end up with retailers having to sort of supply to the, you know, to the algorithm their personalised prices there and offers they're willing to sort of be bidding to get you to get on into that recommendation they're making. So I think it's a massive threat going forwards. It's probably a long way in the future. But part of me thinks if it's happening now and people are already sort of accepting through, you know, it's obviously a different development path than China, but, you know, it's happening there. So why on earth would it not happen in any EU countries? Yeah, I actually don't think it's going to be that far away, actually. I think it's more a medium-term trend. And I actually think it's going to be an irony here that we're going to see more humanised digital engagement mm. through non-human agents. Yeah. Um, so on the one hand, we're clearly seeing through consumer research that customers are more interested in a two-way dialogue with brands, whether that's leaving reviews, you know, direct engagement. And as I think Mark mentioned earlier, in Asia already, it's far more common to use instant messaging to communicate with customers. Brands in the West have been slightly slower to adopt this, but we are seeing brands like Adidas now using um, WhatsApp to create groups of interested customers, giving content around different sports that they're interested in. What we're already seeing as well is the use of AI devices. Um, Perhaps the most famous is Amelia, which has been used by a range of companies already and even by Enfield Council now. So it's becoming more common for companies and, and, and local councils to use these type of devices for front-end customer service. And it's just my view that they will allow for more personalised online engagement. And if, and if each brand wants to have a unique, personalised conversation with each customer through better use of data, etc., then you can't do that through human staff. It's just mm-hmm. not going to be achievable. Mm-hmm. You can do it for more uh, advanced AI that replicate human emotion. So Amelia, for example, can replicate natural voice. It can even um, register human emotion and empathy in the voice mm-hmm. and respond accordingly. And I just think over time, it will become increasingly normal and natural mm-hmm. to have these type of AI systems communicating yeah, to you I online. I totally agree. So yeah, so we'll, um, we'll learn our emotional socialization from machines. I mean, there was actually an interesting case with um, the Amazon Alexa 
system that um, because you can just bark instructions into the air, they're finding that um, children now are not saying please and thank you because they can basically just say, Alexa, put some music on, play Octonauts, you know, get Peppa Pig on. So there, there was an update recently on Alexa, which um, you can optionally now insist that your children say please and thank you um, to Alexa in order to get it. But the, the Alexa thing is also interesting because they've they've open sourced their API. Mm. So brands and companies are already in their thousands, actually, creating apps that plug into the Alexa system. Now, obviously, that may change over time, and as you know, as, as um, they vie for prominence, you know, with all the other apps, so there, there will probably be some more interesting charging model which will get them better priority, you know, um, amongst the, you know, all, all their competitors. But yeah, I mean, you know, again, if you look, if you look at Google, it, it's already surfacing um, information. The 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 um, the interface effectively is disappearing. You know, we we're already. You know, just talking at our phones, talking into the into the air for Alexa, using Siri. I mean, and Facebook as well is is investing huge amounts of um, money to basically replicate the the WeChat AI functionality, so that they can build in payment. And again, it's going back to this thing that once you solve the payment part of the equation, suddenly everything else starts to fall into place behind it. Great, thanks, guys. I think it's probably time to move on to um, to, to question number four, uh, which is about the last painful mile. And uh, quite often, uh, the pain point of online shopping is absolutely within the last mile. Still, it's still that sort of delivery phase. Supermarkets do manage an hour slot, but many other retailers still require you for you to wait in half, if not the whole day. And this kind of this feels no longer acceptable in an instant access world of Amazon Primes. Um, so as online shopping um, increases, will the delivery model be forced to change? Is there validity in considering flipping the ownership so it's the recipients rather than the sender who chooses who delivers to them? Will consumers all have a personal contract with one delivery company of their choice? Or will delivery companies bid for each delivery and the recipient chooses the fastest or the best for them? Uh, Mark, I know you've got some thoughts on this. Well, to, to answer your last point first, I mean, this is something obviously we discussed a lot quite recently. I mean, it's it's a really interesting concept, isn't it? The idea that, you know, in a world where you've got people like Deliveroo and Uber and various other companies who can get your product to you and you've got all the big players as well, like um, DPD and and uh, can't think of any others off the top of my head. But, you know, as you say, they, they can't get to you in, in anything less than half day slots. Suddenly... It, it it's the last bit of the equation that consumers seem to have no control over. So the one potential disruption could be that um, we can, there almost becomes a free market of, of who the delivery companies are. And then we go out and choose the one that we feel has the best service or the best rating or is able to service our needs in the best way. And I'd be very interested to see where anybody's already looking at that. I don't know anybody who's doing it yet. I think we should. Well, maybe so, yeah. <laughs> um, absolutely. The the other interesting, I mean, there was um, they've announced trials of the um, Starship delivery drone in the UK yesterday, I think. And a couple have been seen around London already. If you don't know what the Starship is, it's basically looks like a, a cool box on wheels. Mm. Um, they were trialling it, I think, in Berlin, um, earlier in the year um, and effectively this is an autonomous drone on wheels that can travel along the pavement and deliver low-cost items you know within a very short space of time the, the crazy thing about that of course is that it's a disruption that's coming along and already disrupting something that we consider to be in the middle of a disruption already which was <laughs> um, you know crowdsourced delivery services mm. such as 
your deliveries and and Uber Eats and and, and all those kind of stuff. We we recently um, took part in a, a Unilever hackathon, which asked exactly this question: How can retailers uh, deliver products to, into the hands of um, consumers within sixty minutes and retain profitability? The simple answer is: In the short term, I don't think there is a way of doing it profitably. However, if they want to if they want to compete, then maybe they're going to have to take a hit on the costs associated with providing that level of convenience because simply that is consumer expectation now. We want stuff in our hands as quickly as possible. Personally, I think the, the solution will probably be a technological one rather than um, some of the interim stuff that's popping up now. You know, I, I suspect that within a couple of years we won't be seeing hordes of cyclists hanging around outside Chimichanga mm. you know, ready to deliver burritos across London. I think there will be you know, other ways of doing it. But, um, you know, who knows? I I couldn't agree more. And I think the, so you're right that Uber Rush in America, now delivery of anything within an hour, Amazon Prime one hour deliveries, just raising the expectations that we're seeing across all retailers. But I do think, although it's a massive challenge, there is a real opportunity here for retailers. Because as Mark said, let's take Amazon, the food service, for example. They can't at the moment build an economically viable model. Mm-hmm. But what retailers have, they may be behind the curve in adopting these type of trends. But if you're a national retailer, you have this natural, uh, sorry, this national distribution of physical locations throughout mm-hmm. the country, yeah. you know, nodes that can be connected for delivery services. So in a strange way, it's actually national retailers who traditionally may seem more conservative and not really mm-hmm. engaging with life on demand trend, who may have the built infrastructure that over the longer term could allow them to create a model to capitalize on this. And actually, this was... Um this was our solution for the hackathon that we worked on for Unilever was to actually leverage the footprint that the, the, the big mm. five have already got, you know, the retailers have already got in the UK by effectively um, using them as micro distribution points, which you then crowdsource the, the people that, that yeah. do the last mile delivery. I think the problem still remains that you still have to, you have to expect consumers to pay a, pre, a mm. premium to do it and then you have to pay somebody to do the actual delivery. And... You know, in the in these sort of days of, and we're still in austerity. We're still very much in in budget cut mode. I think, in, you know, most people are trying to watch the pennies. You, you do have to ask the question. You know, how much do I need? You know, that box of Magnum or that pint of milk or or that USB cable? Can it wait until tomorrow? I know the answer quite often is no. I think most people, you know, make that judgment call, don't they, at the last minute, and and think, well, actually, I'm quite prepared to pay two pounds fifty or what's mm. it for Amazon now? It's about seven quid, isn't it, to get yeah. something delivered? within an hour in London. But I think that's the other thing as well, is this, all this is very metro-centric. Yeah. It's all, all these kind of solutions and all these problems are being identified as things that are uniquely city-based and city-solved. But, you know, a lot of people that actually don't live in cities and certainly where I live, you know, Uber doesn't exist. There's certainly, you know, you can't get takeaways delivered half the time. So, you know, whatever the solutions are, I still think that it's going to be Probably something in the world of, auto- I'm not going to say drones because you know I still think there are huge regulation issues with things like the the Amazon drones. But I still think that there will be a an automated solution to it. And if you go ahead into the future, another five six years where you've got fleets of um, self driving cars potentially driving yeah. around the UK road networks, well, you know, right there you've actually got mm. potentially a delivery fleet. The bigger the bigger question to ask is what does that do to employment? What does yeah. that do to you know, the, you know, how can we all afford to buy these things when you know half the people that are paying for it are actually now going to be unemployed because because <laughs> they're not driving taxis, buses, mm. trains, um, or doing you know, deliveries. and or doing mm. deliveries. Yeah. 
I think Mark raises a point there that's really important for all companies and, and also retailers is so many of the solutions we talk about over the next 10 years have some form of automation, whether it's better self-service in store, um, automated delivery services, that's going to change the role of staff mm. um, for retail brands. Now, the easy answer is often that I will just redefine what human customer service is about. You know, it will be more expert-led customer service and the more functional task can be replaced by automation. Mm-hmm. But that alone won't be able to create the kind of jobs that we replaced by the future of automation. So I think for retailers and all companies, finding a corporate position and how you respond to even more automated efficiency changes, but in a way that seems to be, you know, fair and uh, and done in a, in a fair manner will be a, a key challenge for retailers and, and all companies, really. So, four interesting topics, three great participants, thanks to each of them going their way. We've discussed some really interesting um, areas, blended retail, digital serendipity, AI in retail, and the last painful mile. We've uncovered the importance of payment tech in stitching on and offline worlds together. The fact that the path to purchase is changing rapidly and being disrupted through now arriving automation tech is here, such as Amazon Dash. And of course, it would be remiss of me not to recap on the type of data that retailers hold, how they use it has a massive implications for how consumers are willing to engage, whether or not that's through AI online or AR somewhere off in the future. So there you have it, the TMW Unlimited inaugural strategic agency podcast, Viewpoint, created in partnership with our trends partner, Future Foundation. We hope you enjoyed listening, would welcome thoughts and comments via Twitter and keep listening for more. Thank you very much. <laughs>